Well, happy Easter and good morning, everyone. It is great to be together. Uh, welcome RBC family, as well as uh, any of you who are joining us, uh, maybe for the first time. We are thankful to be able to celebrate our risen Lord. He is risen. You all said he is risen indeed, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you did. We are, are uh, so thankful. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful uh, privilege it is to be able to celebrate our risen Lord this morning. Uh, we are thankful that you have chosen to uh, be a part of this with us. Uh, we want to encourage you um, as you are with uh, your family in your homes this morning, take some pictures and, and get those sent off to us. And, and uh, we'd love to see uh, how, what it looks like for you right now uh, celebrating this resurrection day um, with your family. So get those off to us. And we also want to make sure you're, you're aware you can email us at info at ranchobaptistchurch.org. Uh, if you have any prayer requests or if there are any needs that are out there, please make sure you let us know about that. Uh, but we are, are just so thankful that you're here with us this morning. And I'm going to open our time in a word of prayer before we get into the rest of our service. So if you would, please bow your heads with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given to us. And um, Lord, this is, this is a day that you have made. And as we come to, to remember um, your son and the fact that the tomb is empty this morning, we, we have nothing but praise and adoration for you, our great God and King. Uh, it is by your power that he is risen, that the tomb is empty, and that we can have new life. And so for that, we give you praise and thanks this morning. Father, we pray that you would be honored as your word goes forth today, that you would be magnified uh, as, as the gospel is preached, and as we, we worship together through, through song and through your word, um, we just uh, want to make much of you, for you are worthy. And so we, we give this day to you with joyful hearts, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Jason, I'm going to hand it off to you and uh, uh, leading us this morning. Thank you. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Eric, and, and welcome, everyone, to our Resurrection Sunday service. What a wonderful opportunity we have to gather together today. And I praise the Lord for this opportunity, even though I am certain, as it is for me, the same for you, this is a different kind of Resurrection Sunday, is it not? I am sure as you look around that, that you recognize that there's all sorts of people not with you that normally are with you. That, that could be family, that could be your church family. And I want to just remind us all this morning that Resurrection Sunday it's about Jesus Christ. It's about what Jesus Christ has done and about who Jesus Christ is. And so as we start off this morning, as Pastor Shane on Friday was kind of the guinea pig for this, we are going to try to worship together now through this avenue that Alan Marsala has helped us with. And we are first going to sing a song, the Easter song, that is about what this day is to represent, that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And then the second song that we are going to sing as a body virtually, and thank you for joining us this morning. The second song will be about the who 
of this resurrection day, that it is indeed in Christ alone that we have all that we have and that we are who we are because of what Christ accomplished. So, Alan, if you could go ahead and, and bring on the songs, brother. ringing the singing that you can be born again hear the bells ringing the singing Christ is risen from the dead the angel upon the tombstone said he has risen just as he said Tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. Joy to
Well, welcome back, everyone. Praise the Lord for, for modern technology and for Alan giving us the ability to, to go ahead and worship the Lord together in song, even though we are apart from one another. I am so thankful to the Lord for the opportunity to spend time in the Word of God this morning, letting the Word of God direct our thoughts towards Jesus Christ. And what we are going to look at this morning is the empty tomb. Did you know, and I had no idea about this, did you know that each year millions of people go and they visit tombs all over the world? They, they go to cemeteries and, and they visit cemeteries. The, the most famous, the most well-visited cemetery is, is in Paris, France, and it is called Bear La Chasse. And they get over 3.5 million people each year going there. Why? To, to visit the grave sites, to remember those that have passed. And we see the same thing in America. We, we know that, that the National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, that thousands of people travel there each year. Why? To visit and honor our nation's war heroes and to remember them. 600,000 people a year go to the site of Elvis Presley's gravesite in Graceland. And each year, millions of people, they, they travel all the way to Egypt, they go to the pyramid, and no doubt they go to the pyramid because it is such a magnificent structure. It, it is so awesomely put together. No doubt one of the, the best, most significant structures ever made by, by, by man's hand. And yet they don't just go in order to look at the structure, but they understand that, that the reason why those pyramids were built was because the Pharaoh himself that, that constructed that particular pyramid, he was going to have his body laid in there. He was, he was going to be mummified and, and stuck inside that pyramid, but he wasn't stuck inside that pyramid alone. They, they also took a, a whole bunch of all of his worldly wealth, and they put that inside the tomb with him so that as he enters into the afterlife, he can enjoy the good life with all of his stuff. And we know from, from a Christian perspective, from what God's word says, that you're not taking anything with you when you die. But the reason I mention all of these places, all of these cemeteries, all of these particular grave sites is because the reason they are famous is because everyone goes there to see what they contain, right? That, that's why they go. They go to, to go around and read all the different tombstones and, and the people that are buried there. But what we are about to look at this morning is an incredibly different tomb. You see, the tomb of Jesus is famous not because of what it contains, but actually the complete opposite. The tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ is famous because it contains nothing. All these other tombs, all these other cemeteries, they are full. But, but the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reason why it is so famous is because it is empty. In fact, if it were not empty, I would dare say that none of us would be gathering this morning, that we would be celebrating his wonderful resurrection, and none of us would have 
even heard of the name of Jesus Christ. And yet we know that Jesus's tomb is indeed the empty tomb. And that is what we are going to see this morning. So if you have your Bibles, whether they, they are a, a Bible like mine, and, and yes, I recognize this is a big monster Bible, or whether it's a, an app on your phone, or whether it's a smaller Bible or what have you, whatever device you have the Bible, and please turn with me to John chapter 20. As we are going to see in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29 this morning, the incredible witness of both the empty tomb and the risen Lord. Our outline this morning is very simple. It's just two points. We are going to see the witness of the empty tomb, and then we are going to see the witness of the risen Lord. So starting in verse 1 in chapter 20 of John, we read, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. 
So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. For the wonderful truths presented to us, Lord, and, and we ask that you would allow us to grasp anew the significance of the empty tomb and the wonderful witness of you, Lord Jesus, to so many on that first day. We ask that you would guide our time as we seek to honor you, to lift you high, as we remember your beautiful resurrection this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as I said, this morning what we are going to look at is, is two different aspects of what has happened on this particular Sunday morning, the first Resurrection Sunday. What we are going to see first is the incredible witness of the empty tomb. And this witness is given, we see in the first 10 verses. And what we see happening is really what John is giving is a testimony account of when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But instead of starting off with himself, he starts off with Mary. And not just any Mary, but Mary Magdalene. And he starts off letting us know that this is the first day of the week. This would have been Sunday morning. Jesus was crucified on Friday. This is now three days later. Mary Magdalene, as well as we know from other gospel writers, that there were other women with her who got up. Their intention was to bring spices to anoint the body of Jesus for his burial. And no doubt they take off together that particular morning. Mary Magdalene with all these other women, but, but for some reason she gets to the tomb site by herself first. Perhaps they veer off to, to go pick up another woman, and Mary keeps going. And so we see three things. We see that, that she arrives in the dark. She arrives alone. And she arrives and sees something that she does not expect to see. And what she sees is unbelievably 
the, the tombstone is rolled away. This is not what she was expecting. You see, she is thinking that when she would arrive, that that stone would be there, still blocking the entrance into Jesus's tomb. But instead, the stone is rolled away. And what we are told is that quickly she just does a U-turn and, and she goes and she knows exactly who she needs to go talk to. You see, because in Mary's mind, she's convinced what has happened. She believes that the body of Jesus has indeed been stolen. And so what she does is, is she goes to the two big men. She goes to the apostle that Jesus loved, John, and then she goes to Peter, who is no doubt the leader of all the apostles, of all the disciples. So she goes and she seeks them out. And she goes and she tells them something is wrong. The body of Jesus is gone. And, and then what's their response? Their response, even in the Greek, as we can see from, from the first word, is it seems that they start off kind of slow together, perhaps talking. And as they're getting closer and closer to the tomb, I believe they get more and more excited about what is happening. And it turns into a foot race. And, 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 and they race. And John is faster than Peter. In fact, he's significantly faster than Peter because he gets to the tomb and he has enough time to stop, to stoop down. And, and, and the way that, that this tomb would have been set out was that the hole was just would have been about three feet high. And so in order for him to look inside the tomb, he'd have to peer down. And, and so he bends and he, and he has enough time while Peter is still running to catch up to him. He has enough time to look inside. And what does he see? He sees these, these linens that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus. And, and that's all that he sees. And then we see Peter come. And Peter, no doubt, as he's coming up to John, maybe he gives him a little bit of a wink, a little bit of a smile. And Peter has absolutely no other thought but then going right directly into the tomb. Why? Because this is the way Peter is. Peter is bold and Peter is big. And so what does he do? He goes right into the tomb. And as he stoops and then goes into the tomb, what we see in verses 6 and 7 is that, that Peter came following John, and he entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Okay, that's what John saw. But then he sees something more. He sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. And he sees that line with the wrappings, but, but it's rolled up in it, and it's in a place all by itself. So what Peter sees is different than what John sees. Why? Because Peter's vantage point is different. He's actually inside the tomb. And so he's privy to more than, than what John is seeing from the outside perspective. And as Peter looks, the, the word that John uses for him seeing this linen wrapping that, that was around Jesus's head, when it says that he saw it, it's, it's different than the word used for John peering inside and looking. This is a scene where, where literally Peter actually stops and, and with sustained attention, he looks at one, one, one particular thing. And, and I believe what he's looking at is he's looking at that face cloth of, of Jesus. And he's looking at it and he's trying to make sense of what is going on. Okay, wait, we, we We've got the body wrappings right here and then separate from it, from those, we have his face cloth that was wound up around the head of Jesus. 
And, and you know what's really amazing is this word that says rolled, that they were rolled up in place, that can literally mean coiled up in place. Could it be that as Peter looks at this, the reason why he's spending so much attention on this one particular thing is because it looks just like it did when Jesus's body was there, except for it's now deflated. And that it's right there, and Peter is just trying to figure out what has happened. And as he's doing this, now we know that John joins him. And John comes in, and he sees this as well. And, and his response is different than Peter's. You see, John, he looks at everything, and although his vantage point from the outside wasn't as good as Peter's, as he comes in and he sees the significance of what is before him, John's understanding is much better than Peter's. And he understands and quickly figures out that what has happened is that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And isn't this amazing to see that the witness of an empty of the empty tomb was enough, was enough to, to go ahead and let John know, oh, I am convinced that Jesus raised from the dead. That Jesus indeed did raise from the dead. And notice that all this happens before Jesus ever shows up. This is all because of the witness from the empty tomb. And then we're told after this that they go back home. And just think about that for a moment. What would that mean for the Apostle John as he goes back home? Do you know who is at his house now? Who he is looking after? Do you remember what Jesus says as he is dying upon the cross? He looks at John, this beloved disciple of his, and he says, he says this is now your mother looking to Jesus' own mom. And then he looks at Mary, Jesus' mom, and he says, this is now your son. And then it says in Mark that from that point on, John looked after Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. And so when it says that these two guys go back home, John, who now understands that Jesus has risen from the dead, he is given the pleasure, the privilege of going back to his home, sitting down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and letting her know, Mary, you won't believe what I saw. Jesus, your son, he has indeed risen from the grave. Can you imagine what Mary's face would have looked like as she heard for the very first time? that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And again, all this happens before Jesus ever shows up on the scene. This is all from the vantage point of this, the empty tomb and the witness that that was in particular to John, who now believes that Jesus has risen from the dead without ever seeing him. But listen to me, we can't stay at the empty tomb. Why? Because Jesus didn't stay at the empty tomb. So we can't stay there just thinking about the empty tomb. There's much more significance to the empty tomb than the tomb itself. And that's what we see next. What we see is that, that 
Jesus, who was in that tomb, is no longer in that tomb. And what is he doing? He is seeking people out. He is being a witness unto himself as he is going towards those who love him, towards his disciples. And he is reaching out to them. And, and that is what we see next. As we see the witness of the risen Lord. And the first person who we see the Lord witnessing and going after is Mary. And I would like to present to you that, 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 that what we see is the witness of the risen Lord to the tearful. Because that is indeed who Mary is as we see her this morning. Look at verses 11 to 13. As we see Mary. So no doubt what happens is Peter and John leave Mary. They run. They make it to the tomb. And now they understand. John believes that Jesus rose from the dead. They head back home. And somehow they miss Mary. And Mary is now coming back to the tomb. And we know that, that the other ladies that were with her, they have already, they, they see Jesus, but they see her, they see, or he sees them later. And so Mary then is now coming back to the tomb. And look at what it says. But Mary was standing outside the tomb. What? She was weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and, and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Oh, the emotion wrapped up in, in, in these verses. Oh, the sorrow that Mary must have felt. Why? Because she still didn't understand. She still thought that the body of Jesus had been stolen. And so what does she do? She's crying. She's weeping. Literally, it's, 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 it's extreme anguish. And, and that is what she is, she is crying over. The fact that, that her Lord, the, the one who she loves and the one who loves her, has now been taken away. And even his body has been taken away. She would have been fine with just seeing his dead body. And so she is just full of real inner sorrow. And the way that she is crying, it's a constant crying. It's not a crying that's going to stop. It's not a crying that she wants to stop. She has no intention of stopping this crying. She can't control herself. She is so distraught. And yet I would classify her as tearful but not fearful. She should have been fearful because that is the normal response when someone sees an angel. And she sees two angels. So just as John looks down into the tomb, this is exactly what Mary does. But she doesn't see the same thing that John sees. As she looks in, she sees two angels in white. She should recognize them as angels. Mary, how come you don't see them as angels? The reason why is because she is so overwhelmed with grief. She, she has really no time for fear. And so this fear doesn't even register. That's how intimately she loved the Lord. Man, what a challenge that she loved the Lord that much, that everything else paled in comparison. And notice the question by the angels. There's something implied by this question by the angels. 
It's the understanding that, that Mary, you should have gotten this. Mary, are you kidding me right now? What, why are you crying? This is not a time of sorrow, Mary. This is a time of joy. You should be rejoicing, but you are not. And then notice her response. My Lord has been taken away. Not, not Jesus, the teacher. No, my Lord. Even though she doesn't understand everything that's going on, she is still believing in Jesus Christ as her Lord. And no doubt she is thinking, if I could only see or touch even his dead body, that would be enough for me. And yet, little does she know that Jesus is already coming to her. And while she's in this conversation with the angels, look at what happens in verses 14 and 15. As Jesus is seeking her out, it's not enough for him just to send his angels. He wants to go and speak personally to her. When she had said this, so this is after she responds to the angels that they took the body of her Lord away. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there and she did not know that it was Jesus. Isn't that strange? Why did she turn around? She's having this conversation with these, what she thinks are two men inside the tomb. And for some reason, she turns around. I wonder if that's because the angels fall prostrate as Jesus comes. And, and give him worship. Or perhaps Jesus behind her steps on a twig. We, we, we don't know why she turns around, but she turns around. And she sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't know that that is indeed Jesus. And then Jesus says to her, look at what he said to her. Woman, why are you weeping? The same question that the angels asked her. But then he adds a very not important other question. That is a heart probing question, a heart that a question that he is trying to pull out of Mary, a particular thought that she's gone off with. As he says this, whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So, so what is Mary doing? Mary is looking for the what. And what Jesus is trying to teach her is, no, 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 stop looking for the what. You need to be looking for the who. Mary, what you're all about right now is you think this is all about a corpse. He doesn't ask her, what are you looking for? Because he knew what she was looking for was a dead body. No, he comes to her and he's giving her this very leading question trying to show her who she should be looking for, that she should be looking for a person, that she should be looking for the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, how, how significant and what great timing that we would be looking at this, that we could ask ourselves this morning, who are you looking for? Or are you just about what you are looking for? Are, are you more concerned right now that there would be some sort of answer to the coronavirus? That, that your question right now is, what will get you through the coronavirus? No, 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 that's not the right question. That the right question is, who will get you through all of eternity? 
That is where Jesus is directing Mary. Not to the what, Mary. No, it's not about my body. It's much greater than that. It's, it's about me. So it should be that she should have been looking for a person. She should have been looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then we see that, that she misses him. How, how does a woman who loves Jesus so much miss him? And it could be that Jesus kept her from seeing him for who he truly was. It could be that, that she wasn't looking for the resurrected Savior, which seems to be the case. She was looking for his body. It could be that her only expectation was to see a gardener, so that's who she sees. And this morning, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think Jesus to be? Could you be missing Jesus for who he really is today? And we see the love of Jesus and how quickly he responds to her. You see, he doesn't keep her in this sad and tearful state for very long. Look at what he, what he says in, in verse 16. He only has to say one word to her, and then she gets it. And then her tearful sorrow is turned to joy. And all he says is her name, Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. So as Jesus speaks to her, what he literally says is, he says, Miriam. He's using the Aramaic. He's using her personal name that her parents literally gave her. Not some Greek transliteration. He's using her very personal name to relate to her. I am your personal savior. I am your Lord. You and I have a relationship, Mary. You know me. You love me. I love you. I know you. And then we see in her response something oh so sweet. As she calls him rabbi, she doesn't just call him rabbi, which would have just mean teacher. She, she calls him rabbi, which is, which is a word that you only use for those rabbis that you really equated to be like God. And so what she is saying is, you are not just my teacher, you are my God. And then we see what she does. She clings to him. She holds tightly on to Jesus Christ as if she is not going to let him go. This reminds me of a kindergartner going to school for the first time. Do you remember that? I remember when I was in kindergarten. You know what I did? I held on to my mom's leg as hard as I could so that she'd have to pick me up and then she'd, I'd still be holding on. And I'm going with her. She's walking and I'm hoping that she will literally take me back to the car and I don't have to go to kindergarten. We'll put it off for another year. That, that's the kind of clinging that Mary is doing here to Jesus Christ. You left me. I'm never going to let you leave me again. And yet Jesus is so gracious in the way that he responds to her. And he, and, and, he, and he lets her know, hey, stop holding on to me. Things aren't going to be like they were, Mary. I've been with you for, for all this time, and I'm going to be with you for another 40 days, but not another 40 years. And I have a job for you, and I'm going to send you the, the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. But I have a job, and I, and I want you, Mary, I want you to go to 
my disciples. And I want you to tell them that I have risen and that I am going to ascend to the Father. And notice what Jesus says and how he says it about his disciples. He doesn't call them disciples. In verse 17, he said, but go to my brethren. Go to my brothers. This is the first time Jesus has called these disciples his brothers. He's called them friends. He's, he's even called them servants before. But he's never, ever called them brothers. Why is that? Because before the cross, before him raising from the dead on this glorious resurrection day, their relationship with Jesus, their relationship with, with God was entirely different. Now they have been welcomed into the family of God. Now they have been welcomed in as brothers of Jesus. And, and you sisters, if you are home, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you likewise are a sister of Christ. With God being our Father. And yet, too, we're to understand that even in this, that does not mean that we have the same relationship with God the Father that Jesus does. We are adopted in as his brothers and sisters. And that is what he is communicating oh so preciously to Mary. Go and tell my brothers what has happened, that I am ascending. So we see that Jesus appears to the tearful, that he appears to Mary, and that he replaces her sorrow with joy. And next we see that Jesus also, as his witness, that he appears to the fearful, and he's going to bring them peace. He's going to give them peace and joy. Look at verses 19 to 21 as we see Jesus appearing to the fearful. And who are the fearful? It's the apostles themselves. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, so that we cannot miss what day this is. This is still Resurrection Sunday. This is still Easter Sunday. This is now the evening of that particular day that started off early with Mary. And now we see what the disciples are doing. And when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Notice how many times Jesus tells them, peace be with you. In just these three short verses, he lets them know at the beginning and at the end. Why is that? Because that is what he has come to bring, that he has brought them peace. And notice what kind of state they're in. There's many things that we do not know that we are not told about this particular meeting, why they're meeting, where they're meeting, who actually was there. But one thing that we are told is significant, the fashion, how they were meeting. They were meeting in much fear. You see, they locked the front door. No doubt as they were talking, they were talking really quiet. Why? Because they were scared to death. They recognized, they had heard all these different stories. Maybe even some of the ladies that had seen Jesus were there with them. 
We don't know. And as they were hearing all of this story about Jesus's tomb being empty, about Jesus appearing to different people, they no doubt started thinking this could go very bad for us. Because when the Jews hear about this, the very ones that crucified our Lord Jesus Christ, they could blame us. They could accuse us of stealing the body. And if that is the case, then we could be in serious trouble and we could forfeit our very lives. It could be within a day or two days, we could be hanging on the cross. And so as a result, they are fearful. And yet Jesus doesn't leave them in this fearful state for long. As we see, Jesus comes and he meets them and notice how he meets them. He doesn't need to open the door. It says nothing about him opening this locked door. He must go right through the locked door. And then as he shows up, he, he shows them his, his hands and his side. He's giving them proof that he is indeed Jesus. And yet there must be some sort of understanding that his body is indeed different. Because unlike our bodies right now, we're, we're confined to physics. We can't go through a substance like a door, like a wall, but Jesus could. And that's because Jesus is, is now in his glorified state. And yet, even in that state, you could see the scars that he had that proved that he was indeed that very same Jesus that was hanging on the cross and that death could not hold him down. And so he comes to his disciples and he lets them know and what is their response? We see that their response is joy. Joy, joy, joy. We, we see the same response in, in Mary. As she finally hears Jesus say her name, her personal name, and she clings to him. Now these disciples as they understand and they now see Jesus, what is their response? Joy. I wonder what my first response will be to seeing Jesus. Will I, like Mary, cling to him? Will I fall at his feet? Will I kiss his feet? And I don't know. But one thing I am assured of, I will be saying thank you. Thank you so much for all that you have done. No doubt I will fall and worship him. And we see here that the peace that Jesus offers is, is more than just some sort of sound night of sleep. It's a peace in knowing where you will go when this life ends. Why? Because he conquered death and we no longer have to fear death. And so on this glorious first Easter day, the apostles and the other disciples, they they gathered, they needed comfort. They needed some encouragement from the Lord, not only that he had risen from the dead, but that they would have help from the Holy Spirit in accomplishing the huge task that Jesus had given them. And as we see Jesus responding to them, was he not so gracious and so loving? He didn't have to go to them. He didn't have to show them the nail prints on his hands or on his side. But he did. Why? Because he is such a gracious and loving God. But what we see last, we see in the life of Thomas, 
we see that, that the witness of the risen Lord now comes finally to the doubtful, not just the tearful, not just the fearful, but, but we also see him coming to the doubtful. Look at Thomas. Because of all the disciples that, that were there, we know that Judas Iscariot wasn't there because he had already died. He had already hung himself. And we, and we are now told here in, in verse 28 that another one of the apostles, the 11th, was not there. And, and that is Thomas, who we see in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Thomas, we, we get it. Thomas, you, you were missing out. You see, all the other disciples, they were there. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw the, the scars. And, and when it says that they told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, that, that is in a tense in the Greek that says they didn't just tell him once. They didn't just tell him twice. They continuously kept telling him over and over and over again to where finally Thomas just said, okay, enough. It's not enough for me to hear about Jesus. I want to see Jesus. No, I don't just want to see Jesus. I want to feel Jesus and I want to touch Jesus. And if that is not the case, then I, then I won't believe. In the Greek, it's stronger than I, I won't believe. It, there's a double negative where he literally is saying, no, I will not believe. He's putting a condition on when he will trust the Lord. And yet look at how gracious the Lord is and how the Lord responds to Thomas. Look at verses 26. As Jesus comes to him, 26 and 27 and 28, after eight days, so it's eight days now, eight days have gone, and now it's the very next Sunday, so this would be a week from this Sunday, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, so it's exactly a, a similar scenario, except instead of locking them, they, they just shut them this time, and they're not quite as fearful. But they're still being wise. And so they shut the door, but that doesn't stop Jesus. And he, and he stood in their midst and he said, again, peace be with you. Why? Because that is what Jesus offers. He offers us peace. And then look at what he does. Then he goes right to Thomas. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. What is Jesus communicating to Thomas? He is letting Thomas know, hey, even though I wasn't there last week, I know exactly what you said. Why? Because I'm God. Why? Because I'm omniscient. Why? Because I'm omnipresent. Why? Because I know all things. And so he, he lets Thomas know the very things that Thomas said needed to happen. Jesus addresses them. First, Thomas says, hey, I need to see the marks. And so how does Jesus respond? See my hands. And then Thomas says this, I need to put fingers into the marks. And Jesus says, reach here with your finger. And then Thomas says, Thomas says I, I must put my hand into his side. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, look, put your hand in my side. And then Thomas says, 
that's not the case. No, I will not believe. And even in answer to that, Jesus says, literally in the Greek, it's stop your unbelieving. Stop being unbelieving, Thomas. Stop being so doubtful, Thomas. And trust me, believe in me. And notice Thomas's response. It's, it's one of the sweetest confessions in all of scripture. His profession of faith. As he now responds to Jesus Christ, Thomas gets it. And in verse 28, we see Thomas call him my Lord and my God, not just my Lord. Now he understands, no, you're so much more than that. You are indeed God. And Thomas is no longer trying to, to be the supreme ruler in his own life and even in his own heart trying to tell God what needs to happen. And he submits himself before the Lord. And he professes to Jesus Christ that you are my Lord and my God. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with Thomas's confession of faith. And yet look at what Jesus says in 29. And, and, and let me finish with this. So sweet of our Lord. Because he's thinking about, about you and I. As he wraps things up with Thomas, he says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? So Thomas, this is all about seeing me, huh? And then he says this, blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. You see, there's nothing wrong with the confession of faith that Thomas gives. That's exactly the confession of faith we all must give. If we are going to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we must understand that he is indeed Lord and God. But you see, the problem with Thomas wasn't his profession, but it was what led to him giving this profession to this confession. You see, he, he trusted in Christ, but he arrived at this only because he saw. And what Jesus is saying is that it's more excellent. It's better if those of you who, really what he's saying is after my ascension, those who follow after you, Thomas, their faith in me not being based on what they see is actually something I'm going to bless more. Not that your faith, I'm going to take it away from you. No, you are saved, Thomas. You are now a child of God. You are now one of my brothers. But oh, so much better for those that follow after you, Thomas. That, that do not have the opportunity to see with their eyes, to touch with their hands, that now, and he's speaking to you and to I, to me this morning, he's letting us know that the way that we trust Christ is by believing what he has said in the word. And, and perhaps as you think about this message this morning, Perhaps one of the three people that we've seen today who Jesus meets, you can relate with. Perhaps as you think of Mary, you, you can relate more with Mary. Because you, like Mary, you're sad. You've had some pretty rough times in your life. And you're wondering if there is anything that can bring you true joy. Or, or perhaps maybe you're more like the disciples that are gathered together in that room, fearful, wondering what is going to happen. Or maybe you're like Thomas and that you're full of doubts. 
and, and you're waiting for proof that this is indeed real. And, and you know what? Listen, I, I get it. I, I understand it takes a lot to believe in what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ, right? It, it takes a lot for us to, to look at him and say, oh, he is not like any man. He is truly God. He never sinned. He was born of a virgin. He could literally read people's minds and to end it all, to prove who he was and that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross. He rose from the dead. You might be saying as you're listening to this, this morning, are you kidding me? You really believe that happened? Yes, that is what scripture teaches. That, that is what we believe. For those of us that have trusted Christ that call ourselves Christians. Do you remember how Jesus referred to his disciples for the first time when he was talking to Mary as brothers? In the truest sense, God is not the father of us all, even though he has created us all. He is only the father of those who have trusted in Christ as their savior. Just as Thomas did. Just as John did. And as such, those have become his brothers and sisters in Christ. They are adopted. We are adopted into the family of God. This goes all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, where God creates everything, right? And then his final work of creation is he creates man. He makes Adam. And then from Adam, he creates Eve. And he blesses Adam by bringing Eve to him. And they become, in essence, kind of like the first family. They are the children. God is the father. And God tells them, hey, you can do anything here except for one thing. You cannot eat from that tree in the, in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat from that one tree, from the fruit of that tree, God says, you will certainly, surely die. It's emphatic. You're not going to get away from it. If you do this, this will be the consequence. And do you know what Genesis chapter 3 tells us? It tells us that, that Adam and Eve sinned, that they disobeyed God's one command, his one prohibition. The only thing that they couldn't do, that's exactly what they did. And when they did that, Sin entered the world and with it death. And that is why from that point on in the history of man, everybody dies. That, that is why we, we, we even see it today with the coronavirus, that, that people are dying because it stems all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Death is something that we must all face. The question this morning, and now I'm speaking to those of you who, who don't possibly don't regularly attend a church. The question for you this morning is, are you ready to die? Because death is something that we all face, no matter where you live. And God is holy. And, and that means that he is perfectly set apart from sin which is doing anything that, that goes against his will 
which could be understood in something like the, the Ten Commandments. And, and what, what does that look like? That, that looks like something like, okay, if you lie, if you steal, if you commit adultery, in fact, even if you just have a lustful thought towards adultery, that that is sinning, that that is going against God's will. And then in Romans 6.23, it, it lets us know that the wages of sin, the thing that you earn from your sin is death. But praise the Lord, that's not the end of that verse. For the wages of sin is death. But then it goes on and it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when Paul says that it is a free gift of salvation, that means that it's nothing that you or I can earn. It's not about how many good things we do versus our bad things, our sinful things. Because God is completely holy and his standard is perfect. You can have no wrong things. You can have no sin. You can't earn it. It's not by coming to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. That will not change your eternal state. The only way that you can change your eternal state is by accepting God's free gift given through Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? You do that by God's grace. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only way for you to be saved is to agree with God that you are indeed a sinner, worthy of eternal death for your sins. And that you would then turn from your sin towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would accept his gift of salvation. So I ask you this morning, is that something that you are willing to do this morning? In light of all that is going on around our country and so many other countries right now with the coronavirus, do you understand and can you say this morning that if you died, you know where you are going? You can say that this morning. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust him as your savior, if this is something that, that you are wanting to do, that you have done this morning, you, you can do it through a prayer, but the prayer isn't going to save you. The way that you are saved is by trusting in Jesus and letting him know. And you can say this out loud. You can say this in your own heart. Jesus, I understand that I am a sinner, that I am in need of saving. I need help. If, if you don't pay my price for sin, then I will pay my price. So I trust in you, Jesus Christ, as my Savior. And then God's word says, if that is the case, then you have become, as Jesus said, one of his children this morning. And, and, and you know what? If that is the case, please hear me. Get in contact with us. Email me at pastorjason at ranchobaptistchurch.org or go onto our website and there you'll see a little tab. It's a gospel tab. And if you click on that, it'll, it'll give you even more of an explanation of what, what I've just given you, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you believe, if you have believed or you have questions, more questions, you're not quite certain yet. 
then please email me or email the church and one of us pastors will get back with you. But oh, hear me today. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior for the first time, then you are now welcomed into his family, into our family, and we want to rejoice with you. And we can do that now through song. And I want to close our time together this morning and, and, and singing two, two songs that, that I just love. The first is a living hope that we have in our Savior a living hope that he has risen from the dead. So we do not need to fear death. And the second song is glorious day, that one day Jesus is coming back and he will restore all things that changed when sin entered the world. And we will be with him forever on that glorious day. So, so Alan, can you please cue up the songs or whatever it is that you do in order to bring up a song and, and, and let us rejoice together in what the Lord has accomplished today on our behalf because he is risen, he's risen indeed.
One day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. The word became flesh and the light shined among Glory revealed, living He loved me, dying He saved me, buried He carried my sins far away, rising He justified, freely forever, one day He's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious
Resurrection Day, indeed. Well, let's close our resurrection celebration this morning in prayer. Let's bow right now. Our Lord Jesus Christ, what can we do but just worship you and thank you that you paid the penalty for our sin, and then three days later that you were raised from the dead, showing all of the world that you had conquered sin and that sin no longer had to rule over us and that we now had peace with God. And you told your disciples that, that they, they should live in that peace. Lord, would you cause us to live today and the rest of this week in, in your peace, your shalom, that you have bought and paid for and demonstrated through your resurrection this morning. And Lord, we would also ask that for anyone who has heard this resurrection of peace that you accomplished for the first time, that they would trust in you and put their faith in you. And that they would know that as they do that, they have passed out of death into life and are now your dearly loved children and can call you Father. Lord, for all of us, we rest in that peace that you have brought about because of your death and resurrection. And we celebrate together and glory in your resurrection and give you great thanks with joy. And we bless you and honor you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Have a blessed resurrection today, and I would encourage you to live in the joy of that resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ.